Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And I remember being in my cousin's den and pulling out this double billfold sleeve of Born to Run, this sort of exotic record. I didn't know anything about Bruce Springsteen. I didn't. I hadn't really heard this, but the visual iconography of that record was really striking to me. Even the typography, and I'm sure your listeners can ex- know exactly what I'm talking about, was stood out for me, and I, and it registered uh, in a way that um, stuck with me for a long time after that. And I remember when Darkness on the Edge of Town came out in 1978. And of course, in those days, me and my buddies would take a bus to the mall and we'd be and we'd shop at Sam Goody, which was the local record chain. And we would carefully um, spend whatever money we had for the record collections that we were curating. And again, I was not particularly aware or interested in, in, in Springsteen, but I but he was on my radar. And then I remember having a very distinct memory of being in high school and waiting for a friend to pick me up and hearing The River. And The River was really the album where I suddenly, where it suddenly locked into focus. And that was a record that I acquired and and poured over and absorbed. And from that point on, I was a bonafide Springsteen fan. And when I was in college, I wrote a, 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 a thesis on Springsteen. I was in college in the era of Nebraska and and born in the USA. And so that's when I became I guess you'd say, a Springsteen scholar. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. In a timey-wimey, this is my first episode I am recording in 2024, but because of my backlog, you won't hear this till probably February. But it is a new year for me, so I'm going to say Happy New Year to my listeners and to my guest, Jim Cullen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jesse. Happy New Year, new year to you as well. Yeah. So tell us a little about yourself. I am a, a native New Yorker, and I was born in, in, in Queens and the son of a New York City firefighter. Uh, First person in my family to go to college. I have a bachelor's degree in English from Tufts University, a PhD in American Studies from Brown. I've written about 20 books, one of which is a book called Born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen in American Life, which will be reissued in a third edition later this year. But late last year, I published a book called Bridge and Tunnel Boys, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, and the Metropolitan Sound of the American Century. And I guess that's why I'm here today. Yes, uh, we are going to get to there, though I always, and by the way, I I was going through your website and I was looking like, I could talk to him about that book. I could talk to him about that book. I could talk to him about that book. So we're going to stay on music, though I am fascinated by some of your TV books that would, we may have to have you come back and talk TV, but we'll stick to music this time. I always like to go to the origin story beginning. So you mentioned growing up there in the New York. Was your family musical? Was there a lot of music in the house when you were growing up? No, actually, there wasn't. My parents, I think, liked people like Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett, which was demographically correct for them as ethnic New Yorkers, Irish and Italians and so on. Sure. Um, 
But again, I mentioned, and I think it's relevant here about being the first person in my family to go to college. I didn't grow up in a house with a lot of books. I didn't grow up in a, an intellectual family. And so the life of the mind for me was discovered through popular culture. Listening to top 40 radio was my sort of window on the world. Going to movies was my introduction to American cultural history. And so I backed into a life of the mind in terms of my academic training through that portal. And it has shaped my perspective ever since. You mentioned this, the TV books. You know, in recent, my, a lot of my work actually spans American history as a whole. I tend to write panoramic, hundred to the present kinds of perspectives on things. But in recent years, I have focused much more on the last half century and have written about, I wrote a book about Martin Scorsese. I did a book about uh, All in the Family. And of course, you know, Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen are squarely in that sort of zone in, in terms of the historical period that we're talking about here. Yeah, one of the things I really, I was intrigued by, Best Class You Never Had, a novel, which sounds very fun. And then from memory to history, television versions of the 20th century. Because for the longest time, what we saw on television was not reality. I was always amazed that on TV, um, people would come down to the table fully dressed to eat breakfast. And mm -hmm. in my house, we crawled out of the bed in our pajamas, ate our cereal, then went and brushed our teeth and got dressed and go to school. It just seemed weird to me that opposite. And I was, I was 18 years old and I was at my aunt's house and it was the first time I'd ever seen people put food on the table. I grew up in a house where everything was on the stovetop. You took your plate, you put it on your plate, and then you sat down. And maybe cornbread or biscuits or something was on the table. And when I saw my aunt put, I was like, that's what they do on TV. That's not real life, is it? So I'm fascinated by that. Just if we could take just a little side journey there. I think one of the things that the story you're telling shows is that one of the things that television did in the mid-20th century is to, well, it, it established what, what what I call a broadcast culture. So suddenly there was a, 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 a sort of a shared view of reality that was very powerful in terms of in terms of shaping our sense of norms. And so you suddenly you're aware that your experience has a particularity that you hadn't previously recognized. And not only did you see another version of reality in terms of how people sit at the table, but you also got this sense that maybe your experience was not necessarily typical or normal or appropriate even. I'm not saying that was correct, but that's an encounter that you were having. And I think that's one of the things that's very powerful about this period of American history. It's what's different than what came before, and it's what's different than what came after. And I do think that Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen are sort of part of this story, because net, because the era of broadcasting is not only a, a matter of television, it's also a matter of radio. And so you're having these national audiences start to get created. This process begins in the 1920s, but it really climaxes in the 1960s and 1970s. And after that, what ends up happening is that the broadcast landscape gets fragmented. You have the rise of cable television, you have the rise of radio formats. And so people get segmented, people get divided, people get siloed, and that's where we are now. So we don't really have that sense of a shared culture that we didn't have you know, back before when you were a kid or that we don't have now that you're no longer a kid. <laughs> it was really a product of that moment. Yeah, 
I, I remember in little Steven's book, he talks about that. No one thought you would have a career in music, right? Like you, and he talked about like the people would have a couple of hits and then you would go on and do another job. And then it was the idea of there's an oldie circuit. We didn't know anything about this. So it's very different, but I want to go back to, I'm curious how supportive were your parents about you going to college? Well, it's interesting because they were very supportive. And as your question suggests, it's not obvious that they would be. I think my parents were, neither of them went to college. Both of them had a working class background, but they came of age in the mid-century, which is an enormous time of hope. And I think that they just had this notion that that upward mobility was not simply a possibility, but almost a sense of inevitable. They left the city, they moved to the suburbs, they enrolled us in a good public school. My, my dad was nervous, I think, at some point. He said, are you really going to get a job as an English major? Yeah. Uh, it's an understandable concern to have. But there was a funny kind of innocence about them at that point that again this does speak to the broader theme of the conversation i don't think that's something they could have taken for granted before that moment of incredible affluence that moment that produced billy joel and bruce springsteen and we're certainly not living in a moment like that now I, I, certainly adolescents today don't need their 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 parents to, to, to tell them to to worry about what their major should be they they have fully internalized that anxiety and uh and, and we see that for example in the decline of the humanities as a no one's an english major anymore and and uh you you uh, it's hard not to worry about somebody who is yeah i i, I thought when as we were recording this a few weeks ago, little Stephen was on 60 Minutes and he said, the United States is the only country in the world where they think art is a luxury. And, and that may be an over-exaggeration, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. The reason I ask is I graduated high school in 77. No one in my family had ever gone to college. No one in my family had graduated from high school. They all had GEDs at best. And and I had a misconception that once you found the perfect major, that it would be like Snow White or Cinderella, like all the thorns would fly away. There'd be a clear path and everything would be rosy. And I had no thought that, no, getting a degree is going to be hard. And there was, and I had not thought about this till my best friend talked about the same thing his parents did not they were like you know if you want to quit college just go on get a real job that's fine and my parents were like oh yeah if college is hard just go get a real job versus i made sure that my son i said chris it's going to be hard and trust me you're going to want to give up but i will tell you as a 45 year old i wish i could go back and tell that 20 year old stick with it you're going to make it. I said, because you will always have that degree. So that's great that they were there for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. So when you started discovering music and discovering art, can you remember when you discovered Bruce and what about his music spoke to you? I have a very distinct memory of, of this discovery and in an important sense, it wasn't my own. It was Christmas Day sort of circa 1976, something like that. And it wasn't my discovery. I had my, I was the, my, both of my parents were the youngest of their respective family, which meant that I had cousins who were older than me. And I remember being in my cousin's den and pulling out 
this double billfold sleeve of Born to Run, this sort of exotic record. I didn't know anything about Bruce Springsteen. I didn't, I hadn't really heard this, but the visual iconography of that record was really striking to me. Even the typography, and I'm sure your listeners can ex know exactly what I'm talking about, was stood out for me. And, I, and it registered uh, in a way that um, stuck with me for a long time after that. And I remember when Darkness on the Edge of Town came out in 1978. And of course, in those days, me and my buddies would take a bus to the mall and we'd be and we'd shop at Sam Goody, which was the local record chain. And we would carefully um, spend whatever money we had for the record collections that we were curating. And again, I was not particularly aware or interested in, in, in Springsteen, but I but he was on my radar. And then I remember having a very distinct memory of being in high school and waiting for a friend to pick me up and hearing The River. And The River was really the album where I suddenly, where it suddenly locked into focus. And that was a record that I acquired and, and poured over and absorbed. And from that point on, I was a bonafide Springsteen fan. And when I was in college, I wrote a, 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 a thesis on Springsteen. I was in college in the era of Nebraska and, and born in the USA. And so that's when I became... I guess you'd say, a Springsteen scholar. And the last thing I'll say about this, and I think this is important because many of your listeners, and I think most Springsteen fans, or at least a lot of Springsteen fans, their Springsteen is Springsteen the live performer. I saw him in Dallas. I saw him in, in Seattle. I was at the Winterland show, like a Grateful Dead kind of thing. And I certainly have seen Bruce Springsteen a, a number of times. But for me, as a kind of a bookish kid, it was the records. It was the, these documents, the, these these texts that became canonical to me and have stayed with me ever since. Yeah, a few years ago, someone for April Fools or something did a a piece of in an alternate universe where Bruce was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer and they had all the albums were actually books and there was a little synopsis about what each book was and i said i want to live in that world for at least long enough to read these books i think that would be fun did you why english why did you decide to major in english i was always interested from a very early age i was interested in writing and, and actually i think this is a little bit of a function of my actually ironically perhaps of my class origins i was not a i was not a kid who went off to, to summer camp i was not i did not play like a lot of my coming from long island where i spent a lot of my childhood i wasn't a lacrosse player i didn't take i didn't have piano lessons i didn't do a lot of the things that my upper middle class peers did and the thing about writing and reading is that they're pretty cheap avocations. There's the public library, and I worked at the public library all through high school. You don't need a lot of fancy equipment. And so that was a way for me to bore in. But I, again, as I alluded to earlier, I was very I was very eager to engage a wider world and, and music, movies, television, and of course, books were a way, a way for me to do that. And so I never, I, I'm not a musician. I've never aspired to be a musician, but, but it became you know, an important uh, portal, again, that word, you know, for me to understand myself and, and my place in the country and in the wider world. So it, I was a kid who loved reading, too. Did you know you wanted to be a writer, though? 
Yeah, I think I knew at a pretty early age, that's what I wanted to do. You know, a lot of people with passions like that, I don't think I really knew, you know, what that meant or how hard it would be. Or, and right. I'm, glad, I'm glad for my innocence that way, because I think, and this is certainly true of people like Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, they're probably better off not knowing just how hard it's going to be. Yeah. Um, they, and they, for them, it was no question. They were never looking back. There was never anything they would do differently. It was a little bit easier for me in the sense that there were clear avenues for someone like myself. I could go to college. I'm actually a high school teacher now. I have taught at the university level, but the pathway seemed reasonably clear. It was not like becoming a, a professional musician or for that matter, professional wrestler. I, there was a certain element of respectability to what I was trying to do, even if it was not going to be easy or remunerative in, in terms of doing so. When Talk about your first book. What was the first book you, and why did you pick that subject? Again, I think this is important in terms of in terms of being a unlike, say, someone like Bruce Springsteen who was walking on a tightrope. I I I felt like I had a reasonable lighted road. And that road for me, although in retrospect, a little bit counterintuitive, I got my degree in English. I, I I worked in a publishing house for a while. I was doing a lot of journalism on the side, but I went to graduate school, not necessarily because I wanted to become a professor. Actually, I learned that I liked teaching after I was underway, but because I thought it would help me write a book. And I thought that, and my, and I, and my goal was to make my dissertation my first book, which indeed it was. And that dissertation slash book was on the way the American Civil War has been portrayed in popular culture. And so I looked at Carl Sandburg's biography of Abraham Lincoln as a kind of New Deal document. I looked at Margaret Mitchell's uh, Gone with the Wind as a sort of a proto-feminist text. I looked at Southern Rock and Leonard Skinner as a sort of a, a defense of the South. I looked at Glory as a parable of Vietnam that was um, set in the Civil War. And that's, and that's how I got started. I was a, a cultural historian and, and to a greater, more or less, that's what I've been ever since. Why do you think your view, excuse me, skewed that way? And that's probably the bad word, but why do you think you lean that way? That is a very unique, I've had other professors on who will talk about they will do modern American history through rock and roll. Vietnam War, born in the USA, there's other things you could do. What made you think of putting the pop culture with the history, peanut butter and chocolate together? I was aware, and I think this is still true, of a, of a fault line here, and, and that the way, we'll, we'll say the professionals the professors, the universities, the scholars looked at things, or you know, more specifically in my case, looked at the past and the, the way the past was remembered by ordinary people and the way that it was coded in songs and in novels and in movies and so on. And generally speaking, scholars often have a problem with that. They, they believe that they foster myths, they, they, they distort the past, they uh, create an easy out and so on. But I, I was interested in that interplay. And again, I think it does have something to do with class, that that scholarship is by and large an elite production, uh, not necessarily an economic elite, but certainly a cultural elite. And I think that there is a certain perspective and wisdom and methodology that accompanies that, a certain kind of clarity, a certain kind of reality that 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 comes from that. But that there's also there are also important truths 
that are represented symbolically and also that, that that reflect the longings and the understandings and yes the wisdom of people who are not a matter of the of the academy and not a part of the academy and so that that at best conversation or that conflict as it sometimes may be is something that has been a matter of enduring fascination for me and and, and has shaped a lot of my work so i want to get to the latest book but let's go back in the TARDIS and talk about your first Bruce book. Talk to me about the origin of that and why that was an itch you wanted to scratch. Yeah, and that grows directly out of the conversation we've been having here because by, by the time I was doing this, and of course I'm starting this in the 1980s, the book comes out in the 1990s, there's no shortage of people who are writing about Bruce Springsteen. I mean, he's, right. he's written, uh, you know, at, at this point, a very famous and and lionized, and 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 there, there are a lot of people who are better positioned, literally and figuratively, than I ever was in terms of being there, whether, whether you're talking about people who were there at, at, at the beginning on the Jersey Shore, you know, the Peter Noblers of the world, the Dave Marshes of the world and so on. Or, you know, as a matter of people who just were, you know, very smart and were making, you know, fascinating interpretive sort of statements. But what I thought I could bring to the conversation and what I really try to do in that book, again, is to try to bring together, you know, this sort of fan's perspective and this sense of a culture that was unfolding in real time on the one hand, and to connect it to a broader historical drama. So that book, which I've actually worked on a fair amount in the in recent months as prepare, preparing this new edition, I've really um, revised and, and, and extensively updated it. But I wanted to look at Springsteen through a much wider historical lens. So thinking about him in terms of the Puritans, thinking, into, thinking about him in terms of the American dream, thinking about him in terms of the, the work ethic, thinking about th him in terms of religion, in terms of gender. Not a musicological analysis exactly, not a biographical analysis exactly, not a journalistic account, but rather as a broader cultural critique. That's something I thought I could do. And I think that that that's to the extent I've made a contribution. That's the form that it takes. When you were doing the research and doing the work, was there anything, and I realize this is a while back, but were there things that surprised you that you found oh, I didn't think that would come up or that that was something I hadn't expected to see. You know, I had instincts, like, for example, yeah. that, that there was some relationship between what Bruce Springsteen was writing about in the 1970s and what Walt Whitman was writing about in the 1850s. But it was a little startling when you look at a Whitman poem like Song of the Open Road which has all these inter interrogative questions. Will you go, will you, will you, will, can we go forth? Can we do this? And how much they resonate with Born to Run. And that also has that same sort of sense of urgency, that longing for escape and a, and a sense of a big country that you get from reading Huckleberry Finn is not all that far from the vistas that get opened up when you listen to an album like Darkness on the Edge of Town. The other thing, and, and I think this is where maybe I am a little bit of an iconoclast, is I'm sure many people in your audience are very familiar with the sort of notorious incident when Ronald Reagan invoked Springsteen in the 1984 campaign, and there was enormous amounts of outcry about that, and a lot of people felt that Reagan was being either cynical or ignorant. But I actually think that Reagan, the Reagan people more accurately, understood something very important about Springsteen in that his work was not necessarily a valorization of the Republican Party of the 1980s, 
but it did speak to a sense of resilience and an affirmation, a tough-minded sense of affirmation that was broadly congruent with what Reagan was doing. And that maybe that's probably the, the biggest surprise is that there was less of a, a gap than perhaps people believed at the time and indeed have ever since. Yeah, because I remember when former President Trump was in the hospital when he had COVID and they, his followers were there and they're playing Born in the USA. And a lot of us made that joke that I don't think they know what this song's about. But I think that's your discussion is the first one that you actually can connect the dots that this, while it isn't a praise of the American society, but it is a thing of the American grit, right? That I'm born in the USA. I'm going to continue to keep, even though I'm a, a Vietnam vet, I'm going to keep pushing forward. That's interesting. I'm a little surprised about that and actually impressed. I, you know, I do think that it's worth, it's notable. And I want to hasten to add that, and I think you're clear about this as well. This is not necessarily something that Springsteen himself is endorsing. He was actually upset about it. He was, yeah. he felt manipulated. He felt Reagan was pulling a fast one here. And certainly Springsteen's politics at the time and ever since have never dovetailed with supply side economics. So right. I, want to, I want I want to be, I, I want to try to be a little bit nuanced about this. Nevertheless, I, I again, I think the spirit of what the two people were trying to do in that moment was less far apart than one might initially think. Yeah, and I think, right, that the easy caricature is that Reagan's people are like, oh, here's this, Bruce is incredibly popular, this icon born in the USA, sounds like this wonderful, and it is, Bruce chooses to do it as a power ballad, not the blues version that was released. And Dave Marsh says there's a reason why he did that. He wanted to do that. You, your perception is they think this is a cheerleading song for America. I like the little bit better that someone in Reagan's camp was, you no, know, this is a song about, as you talked about it, continuing to strive to do this. And that is what we're striving for. I, Yeah, I, that's pretty cool. That's very cool. So why after these years, a new Bruce Springsteen book, and I've got it. How are you? I know that Bruce and Billy have performed together. I think there's a mutual admiration there. I remember when Springsteen on Broadway was just starting. Billy was on one of the late night shows and he's, I didn't get asked to be on stage. I'm like, this is what we always do. And then he says, then I realized it's not that kind of show. Go through that origin story of why did you decide to go back to Bruce and tying the two men together? There's two answers to that question. One, one is autobiographical and geographic, and the other is a little bit more serendipitous. So so I mentioned that I am originally from New York and I'm an outer borough child. I was born in Queens. My my dad worked in Brooklyn. And then we moved to suburbia and I, I grew up on Long Island. In other words, I grew up in Billy Joel country and Billy Joel was the water that I swam in. I, I, I 
that didn't necessarily regard myself as a big Billy Joel fan, but I listened to music, I bought the records, I saw him live. He, but so that was a fixture of my childhood, a fixture of my adolescence. But as I suggested to you earlier, Bruce Springsteen was somebody I discovered and became a, a real passion for me. And you you earlier alluded to this notion of, of Billy Joel, I'm sorry, of Springsteen as a sort of a writer and having a stack of the books. And I firmly yeah. believe that it's an accident of history that Bruce Springsteen was born in the mid 20th century because if he had been born a generation earlier, he would have been a short story writer. I'm convinced Billy Joel would have been a Broadway tunesmith, but Springsteen would have been a, a short story writer. And again, for someone who fancied himself as a writer growing up, I could relate to that. And so that's how the, that's how the first book came about. It was also, I also felt very strongly when I was writing that book that I didn't want to become a professional Bruce Springsteen fan, that, I, that right. I had ambitions, that I wanted to write about other things, and I, and I left it behind. And I mentioned to you that a few years ago, I got much more interested in more of a sense of local history. And I, I've had a string of books now published by Rutgers University Press. And there was an editor at Rutgers University Press that I wanted to work with, and I pitched him an idea that he turned down. And the main reason he told me he turned it down was that he, it's not necessarily that he didn't like it, but that he had a specific bailiwick, he had a specific territory as an editor, which was local stuff, that he that his specialty was books about greater New York. And I was I was discouraged about that or I accepted that. But it's got some wheels turning. And I actually proposed to proposed to him a book that actually I'm currently working on about famous Americans whose lives intersected with the state of New Jersey in one way or another. But you know, getting on that wavelength, I suddenly thought. Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel. It's, it's like that peanut butter and, and chocolate thing. It seems one grows up, one one. they're both born the same year. One is born east of the city. One is born west of the city. They both come from families of, of that, that experienced downward mobility. They both were rebels in high school. They both were, it goes on and on from there. They both, they both signed to Columbia Records at the same time. They both make first records that stiff. They both make second records that stiff. They both make it bigger. So there are all these sort of parallels to begin to emerge. And once I locked in on this, it, it happened all very fast. And I, th I, I, there was a little piece about a little profile of me in, in, in the New York Times. And the writer of that piece said he, it was surprising that these two had not been paired earlier. And I think that's really true. It was hiding in plain sight. And once I made that connection, the book wrote itself. I think I produced the first draft in something in the space of months. It was really very quick. And that got me back on this sort of Bruce Springsteen wavelength. I always like to preface this. I'm going to go back just for a minute. I'm going to take off. We're going to get away from your cap and go back to your fan cap. You mentioned that a lot of people see him as a live performer, and you mentioned you have seen him live. I always preface that with the amount of times you've seen Bruce live is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are, but are you someone who counts? I'm not really someone who counts. I did see him... I've seen him in a variety of settings. I saw him at a Central Park concert in 1982, when he was with a bunch of other people. I saw him in the Meadowlands and in, 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 during the Born in the USA tour. I've seen him at Shea Stadium. I did see Springsteen on Broadway. I had like a third row seat for that. I've seen him. I've seen him actually in, in, in the last couple of years, a couple of times talking rather than performing. So I have I have a few of those sort of stories, but shockingly few compared to many yeah. people. For example, my, my brother-in-law, who <laughs> I, I, has been has gone to dozens of shows. As a writer, what are you, I always think this is interesting when I talk to a writer, not as a music fan, but as a writer. What were your thoughts about Springsteen on Broadway? I was really struck. Actually, it's funny because I, I'm I'm tend to answer that question not so much in terms of writing, but 
I was struck by how much of a theatrical performance it was, that it was very carefully scripted and staged, which was so striking because, as we all know, the hallmark of Springsteen concerts is their sense of spontaneity and their and the, the, the excitement of the unexpected, even though, of course, those had to be orchestrated in some important sense. But, but there was a kind of precision about Springsteen on Broadway that was very... And, and, and yes, I think actually literary. The storytelling was crafted in a, in a much more self-conscious way than you tend to associate with Springsteen's live shows, even though, again, storytelling was always an important part of that. That was constructed as well, but with a very different feel, a very different vibe than you get on a, on a Broadway stage. Yeah, I was surprised. My my son watched it for the first time four or five years ago for Father's Day. That okay, you pick the movie, Dad, and so I picked Springsteen on Broadway. And at the time, I guess he was twenty eight, twenty nine, and he was. He said, "This was so emotional, and it was so funny." He says, "When I also I don't." How do you do that every night? He says, I'm tore up just watching it. How do you do that? Yeah, I, I had a a professor of Greek that he joined me and he says what he said that he did a connection between Homer's Iliad and Springsteen on Broadway. He said there's actually he does a connection on he does a class. He says there's a lot of fathers and this journeys. Yeah, it is. I think it was a really gift and I was I'm constantly happy that my lovely bride was able to bless me to go to the show, right? All right, so once you've got your topic and you start doing the research, I'm going to ask the same question that I did the other. Is the idea there were so much similarities the thing that surprised you the most or was there something else in this new book that you went, "Wow, I didn't see that coming?" I think that one of the reasons why a comparison is interesting, when you get into these similarities, that's your sort of way into this. But in a lot of ways, it's the differences that matter. And, and it's the differences that matter precisely because there are so many similarities. For example, both of these guys have a, you know, have a very strong sense of place in terms of their backgrounds. Both of them have written extensively about their the worlds of their childhood, but, they're, but they often did it in, in going in different directions. As a young man, Billy Joel wanted to get the hell out. He left um, quickly. He went out. He lived in Los Angeles for a few years. He wrote uh, uh, dismissively about the world of his Long, Long Island youth. And and then after a few years of being there, he decides to make, have a homecoming. He he makes an album, Turnstiles, in 1976. And that's where you get New York State of Mind and Summer Highland Falls. And there's a real sense of a homecoming. Um, and that's the trajectory of, of Billy Joel's relationship to his home. Springsteen you know, is going in the opposite direction. He his first couple records, Greetings from Asbury Park, The Wild the Industry and the East Street Shuffle, are sort of celebrations of the local. That to a certain extent, there's mythologized and to a great extent there's fictionalized, but they are Valentines. They are you know, you know deeply immersed, deeply engaged with this sense of place. And ironically, 
at the very moment that Billy Joel is, is making his homecoming, Springsteen moves into escape mode. Born to Run is, I got to get the hell out of here. It, it's a record about being trapped. Darkness on the edge of town, and the vista opens up wide. The Rattlesnake Speedway. He's going in the opposite direction. That's just one example of what we're talking about here in terms of how they're very similar, but it's precisely because they're so similar that their differences become all the more notable and striking. That's... I, I love that story, right? The yin and yang, right? The first two are, and then they switch. And it is, um, wow, I like that a lot. Once again, let's give the title for the book and let's talk about where we can find it. Okay, well, the title of the book is Bridge and Tunnel Boys, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, and the Metropolitan Sound of the American Century. And these days, Amazon is, is the easiest path of least resistance for tracking something like that down. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can certainly see as well my my broader body of work. Okay, very nice. What's next for you, Jim? I mentioned to you that I've got this reissue of Born in the USA that where I really tried to extend some of the, the, the work that I had done back in 1997. Uh, it has a lot on Springsteen's work in the 21st century. I am working on this book about about New Jersey and 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 how everyone from sort of George Washington to Whitney Houston <laughs> have had major encounters that their, their lives shaped in some important sense by this central state, this sort of this way station, this crossroads. It was a crossroads of the country when the nation was founded, and, and in some important respects, it remains a crossroads even now. So you've done mostly nonfiction. Why did you decide to do fiction when you did the novel? I should explain what that book is. It's, a, it's actually a history of the United States told as a form of classroom dialogue. I am, my career has been as a teacher. And obviously there are plenty of textbooks out there and plenty of histories of the United States that one can encounter. But I was trying to capture the sense of dynamism and the sense of conversation that people have and to try to you know, convey how you know, people can have differing perspectives on the same event sort of in, in, in real time. And there's a little bit of a, um, of a it's a wonderful life element to the, to the story, which uh, has lots of Easter eggs referring to that, that great movie. And it's set in, uh, the, the book is set in Seneca Falls, but it is a, it's a year in the life of a teacher and a year in the life of the classroom and the students are the characters. And there's a, there's a kind of back and forth. That's what I was trying to do there. Do you primarily think of yourself as a writer or a teacher? Maybe a little bit of an affectation here, but I, I I think of myself a little bit the way that people like Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen do. They they are live performers who make records, and for me, performance is the classroom. I my my art that way is conversation, and I and then I try to produce you know a body of work that you know that takes over written form. So I guess I'm I think of myself as a a writer, a teacher, and a writer. Do you agree with Little Stephen that? His, you know, in this interview, he talked about that by using art as the gateway to teaching other subjects. Do you feel that way, too, that there is that I feel that I know that what I hated in school was boring classes it, the subject didn't matter. It was if the teacher made it interesting. And, and if the teacher made it interesting, 
How about you? Do you think about that? And you certainly have to entertain and teach though, right? Yeah. And of course, if you're doing your job right, those two things don't need to um, be at odds with each other. Actually, music is a, is a very important part of my of my pedagogy. When I, I for many years, I, you know, I taught the U.S. History Survey and and I would begin that class by playing Jimi Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner, which is such a remarkable document. It's yeah. a tortured, beautiful statement. And I think it's a great way to kick things off. Later this month, I'll be teaching a course called Money, Morals and Mobility in a modernizing age. And we're going to begin that class with Cindy Lauper's Money Changes Everything. I teach a class on biography and I begin that class with Springsteen's great gem from Small Things, Big Things, One Day Come, which is a life story in three minutes. It's a masterpiece of, it's a masterpiece of biography. Yeah. Teaching is to, to a great degree a matter of curating. It's like having a, a good record collection and, and being able to choose the right material to uh, create a mood and sustain sustain a narrative and to bring people in. Is there anything that you still want to do that you haven't had a chance to do, Jim? What are goals you still want to pursue? I would love, I, I, I don't, I've been trying for a long time. I haven't quite figured out how to do this. I would, I really would like to produce a kind of document of what I, what I guess I'll call the sort of late American empire, the moment in which we're living, that that is a, a document and resonant. I've been, I don't know if anything's going to come of this, but I'm, I've just drafted a proposal for a book on the year 1976 thinking about the bicentennial and we're coming up in the sesquicentennial and the mood of the country in 1975, as fans of Springsteen know, in terms of born to run, the United States was not in a great place in 1975. There's the aftermath of Vietnam, Watergate, the energy crisis, the stagflation. There was a real pessimistic moment and we're living in a real pessimistic moment now. I think we feel fragmented, divided, our best days are behind us. And I'm really, I'll be really curious to see whether the sesquicentennial offers a uh, an opportunity for revival that the bicentennial did when it came around in 1976. It was also just a moment. And of course, things did not necessarily improve in the short run. We had malaise, the Carter presidency, whatever, however decent a man Jimmy Carter was, it was a difficult time in American society. And then you have the revival you know, that Reagan offers Americans, or at least a promise of revival. So anyway, they, these are things that I'm kicking around, but I don't know, you know, I always feel like every book I'm writing is the last. And, you know, at some point I'm going to run out of steam and that may be sooner rather than later. I feel that often in the podcast. So I, you, you and I have that in common. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't, Jim? Oh, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of ground here, and I'm I'm glad to have the opportunity to think about this book in relationship to my work as a whole, which which we ended up doing a fair amount here, and I and yeah. I'm not about that because I do think that part of what makes someone like Bruce Springsteen exciting is that we got to grow up with him, we got to live with him, and he was a vehicle for the history of our time. And, and allow allowing us to stake our place in this wider drama that we've been living out for the last 250 years. Yeah, I had a friend or I had someone on the podcast that, and I can't do it justice, but he said that Bruce taught us how to escape and to push with his early work. And then he just taught us how to work through marriage and other things with Tunnel of Love 
He taught us how to grieve and work through the rising and then, you know, through magic, political. And he says, and then on Letter to You, he's teaching us how to face mortality. And I do feel like one of the things that makes him such a good artist, and and I think you could say the same thing for Billy Joel, though Billy has stopped doing as much new music, but the idea, he didn't repeat himself. He Bruce continues to try to change and to tell his story as he talks about he's in a conversation with his fans and his audience and continuing to move that conversation. We often love the people we love because they confirm our notion about the way the world really works. But the greatest artists, and I think and this is part of what I think you're saying, is that they the greatest artists not only confirm, but they also challenge. They ask us to think differently. They ask us to engage. They ask us to grapple. Uh, yeah. And I think we feel really in the end most fully alive when we're, not when we're being confirmed, but when, when we're forced to question. And yeah. that, that dialectic is such an important sense of being alive, of being vibrant okay. in, in real time. All right. So I'm going to ask you the Mary question in a minute. But if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? I've got a website, as you indicated, uh, jimcullenhistorian.com. And uh, there's a pretty there's a pretty uh, good introduction to my work. And there's a contact information there in terms of in terms of email. I'm on Twitter as well. Jay Cullen, A-H-N, American History Now. So yeah, if there, if there's where there's a will, there's a way. That's for sure. That sounds great. Yes, it, I will include jimcullenhistorian.com on the show notes. It is Bridge and Tunnel Boys, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joe, and the Metropolitan Sound of the American Century. I am really looking forward to reading this one. It sounds like a lot of fun. All right, I'm going to let you go. But before I do, I end every podcast with the Mary question. And if you are a fan of Jim's work or a student and you're checking this podcast out for the first time, thank you. Jim made you very proud. I end every podcast with this, what we call the Mary question. Jay Armstrong was an honors English teacher, high school teacher. He is now retired. But when he was teaching, he would give his students the lyrics to Thunder Road, and they would treat it as a poem. They would go through all the lyrics. They would talk about the imagery Bruce uses in the song, talk about the themes he explores. And then he would ask his class at the end, does Mary get in the car? Jim, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? There's no doubt in my mind that Mary gets in the car. But I think what's interesting about the setup here, as you've offered it, is that that if you treat Thunder Road as a work of poetry and you only rely on the words of the text, it's not at all obvious that he would get in the car. Him, the inevitability of Mary getting in the car has everything to do with the way the music crescendos, the way that Springsteen's voice rises. That's really where the source of the confidence comes in. It's not so much what he says, it's the way it's the way that it gets delivered. I, we didn't talk about this, and maybe it's a, it's a conversation for a different time. I also happen to be a big Taylor Swift fan. And oh, one of my nice. favorite one of my favorite Taylor Swift songs, as maybe some of your readers, listeners will know, is her song Betty from, I think it's from Folklore 2021. And it's a she does such a wonderful job of capturing adolescence. Anyway, it's a song about, it's from the point of view of a boy who 
has totally messed up and hurt his girlfriend's feelings. And he goes to her house to apologize. And the song has a very comparable sense of drama to Thunder Road. You don't know what's going to happen. But as with Thunder Road, the sense of confidence and the winningness with which the character delivers the line just makes you feel like, how could she not take him back? Just the way the whole thing is constructed. And it speaks, I think, to the artistry of both Taylor Swift and Billy Joel, that they write these pieces of music, not poetry set to set to sound, but really fully integrated pieces of music. And I think that's why Mary certainly climbs in. I love that answer. I had a guest earlier who said that is in thought with you. He said, it depends. If it's Bruce Springsteen and E Street Band, she absolutely gets in. If it's Bruce Solo, she doesn't get in. Mm -hmm. And I love that thought, right? Because of the, as you said, that majestic of that, that, ending where it's so powerful so absolutely great answer yeah and i i am I, I am just in awe of taylor swift's talent not partly because she adores bruce and also because he seems to his daughter loves her and he seems to praise her anytime he gets that how good of a songwriter she is so yeah that's really great Jim, this was a blast. I hope you had fun. I just, I feel like I've learned a little bit. I've made a new friend. I've had a lot of fun. Once again, Jim Cullen, Bridge and Tunnel Boils, Boys, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joe, The Metropolitan Sound of the American Century. I'll include links in the show notes. And I'm looking forward to doing the new version of the previous book. That'll be a lot of fun. Great. Yeah. Any final thoughts before I get you out of here? No, I'm just uh, glad to be part of a wider community here, and uh, I salute the, the the work that you're doing. Thank you, sir. That's very nice of you. All right, listeners, remember, be safe, be kind, check out the website, check out the book, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.